Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. An anthology of haunting murders written by acclaimed true crime writer Michael Benson and his boots-on-the-ground private investigator Donald A. Tubman. Featured stories include the murders of Joanne Lynn, Pamela Moss, Sherry Smoyer, and Jack King, Tammy Jo Alexander, Demita Gibson, Victoria Jobson, Kelly Gatfield, Kathleen Krausnick, The Brighton Axe Murder, Brittany Drexel, Regina May Armstrong, Loretta Jo Gates, and Terry Lynn Bills, plus many more, including updates on Rochester, New York's double initial murders and the Genesee Junction murders of George Ann Formicola and Kathy Bernhardt. The book that we're featuring this evening is Haunting Homicides, with my special guest journalist and author, Michael Benson. Welcome back to the program, and it's really good to have you back, Michael Benson. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. It's always a pleasure. Uh, your books are incredible, and um, you've been here right from the beginning, right back 10 years ago. So let's sure. let's get to, um, again, it's worth repeating. We've spoken about this before when we talked about the Genesee Junction devil at Genesee Junction. And um, tell us about what event, what event in your life uh, was instrumental in your decision to become a, an, an author and now a best-selling acclaimed true crime author. Well, right. I was, I, I never volunteered to become a true crime writer. I was drafted uh, when I was nine right. years old. My babysitter and uh, her friend from down the road, girls I knew, went to school with, uh, went swimming in a swimming hole behind my house and never came back. And a month later, they were found horribly mutilated a, a mile to the uh, west near some railroad tracks on a lover's lane. Um, happened on graduation night, June 25th, 1966. And uh, that's the story that's in the devil at Genesee Junction. Um, and at that time, I teamed up with private investigator Donald A. Tubman, my boots on the ground. And uh, right. We uh, we got some paperwork signed by the mom of one of the one of the victims and were made uh, the family investigators, got us an in with uh, law enforcement and we had access to files we ordinarily wouldn't have found, and we did a great deal to I think uh, answer some of those questions. Now Alice Bernhardt, the mom, has since passed away, but I, I'd like to think that we gave her a little bit of closure. Makes me feel pretty good because you know we gave her a name instead of a question mark. Absolutely. Let's get to that case a little bit later in the episode here. Sure. Let's start off with Joanne Ina Lynn. Um, yes. This is September. She's in uh, sixth grade. And tell us a little bit about uh, Joanne and Ina Lynn. 
and her sure. absence from uh, school this day. Yeah, I, uh, the first case in the book, uh, Haunting Homicides, is the oldest one. Uh, it happened Monday, September 19, 1949. Victim was Joanne Lynn, an 11-year-old from Hemlock, New York. That's near Hemlock Lake, one of the Finger Lakes. And her school bus had mechanical problems, so for the first few weeks of school, the kids who would normally take the bus were forced to walk down the busy highway to school. She was uh, abducted, police believed by a perverted motorist who lured her or dragged her into his car, and she was found shot with a 9mm gun and left dead beneath uh, thorn apple trees a few miles up the road. Now, uh, she usually walked to school with her brothers and sisters and friends, but on this day she was alone. On this day she took a brief detour southward, stopping at her friend Sue Carpenter's house, only to learn that Sue had already left. And by that time her brothers and their friends, who usually walked with her, were already well up the road. So that left Joanne alone for the walk to school. Uh, She was, by all accounts, in a great mood that morning. She had things to look forward to. The Hemlock Fair was that weekend, and she'd been saving money out of her lunch money to uh, ride all the rides that weekend. And that leads to one of our favorite suspects, who was Ferris wheel operator William Henry Redmond, a man who right. moved from town to town with the, with the carnivals and fairs, and who had twice during the 1930s been arrested, convicted, and jailed for attacking girls when he was still a teenager. Then on April 26, 1951, this a couple of years after Joanne Lynn's murder, Redmond uh, took his attacks to the next level and murdered a little girl who wanted a free ride on his Ferris wheel. Now, she was yeah. found in a truck on the grounds of the Penn Premier Show Carnival in Trainer, Pennsylvania. Uh, she was eight years old. Jane Marie Elthoff found lying on her back across the seat of a tractor trailer with her feet towards the driver's door. So... Joanne Lynn in Hemlock was a little girl who couldn't wait to ride the Ferris wheel. So the connection was made eventually between these two. And it was major disappointment when it turned out that Redmond was not a DNA match with the semen that was found on Joanne Lynn's slip. Now, interestingly, even since the, the book has come out just a few weeks ago, uh, Don Tubman and I have made progress on this case, this 50, was a 70-year-old case. Uh, pardon me for doing the math in my head. Uh, but we, we put a couple of pieces of information together, and I think came up with a lead that maybe no one's looked at before. Uh, it involves the bloodhounds that they used during the days when Joanne was still missing before they, her body right. had been found. And the bloodhounds uh, stopped at a uh, house farmhouse called Green Acres. It had formerly been a, uh, a home for tourists spend the right. summer at the lake. The bloodhounds got to the house, stopped, and then went behind the house, milled around behind the house a little bit, and then returned to the road. And police thought that was the end of the trail. And this was the spot where the motorist had picked up the little girl. But if that was the case, why did the dogs take a right and go behind the house? Uh, what were they doing milling around behind the house, and why did they return to the road again before they stopped completely? And it, it occurred to us that Joanne had gone behind that house uh, for reasons unknown. 
So a uh, a Don spent some time in a in a basement going through boxes of old police records and found a letter that had been written to the Rochester police chief in 1950 saying that she had a friend and coworker who had a 16-year-old son who lived in the house Green Acres and was living with a couple, a 60-year-old, 62-year-old man and his sister. Now, why this little pseudo-family is living together in Hemlock, we don't know. But mm-hmm. the letter goes on to say that the 62-year-old man had been kicked out of his house by his wife um, for trying to fool around with her little stepdaughter. Right. So we have you know, a pedophile and a 16-year-old boy living together in the house where Joanne Lynn's sent the bloodhounds stop. So that, right. that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, now, the key now is to find these people. And uh, it's because they were separated from their families, it's proving to be a little bit difficult. But uh, if we can find out where their remains are, and we're assuming they've passed away. Although the teenager would be 86 now, very possibly still alive. Um, but if this is a DNA case, there was semen found on the slip of the victim. And uh, if we could get a match, we could solve the case, which it was just pretty exciting for something that's 70 years old. Absolutely. Throughout this book, it's you pepper this book with whenever you're doing a book signing for Devil at Genesee Junction, uh, whenever you, you're getting responses from that, almost immediately online and you make new contacts and again lead to new leads that you can provide to police uh, things that no one else had thought of or people that were afraid to contact police or hesitant to contact police that's this book is entirely full of those kinds of anecdotes what about the connection between Althoff and Lynn's DNA you write part of the mystery of this was there a match for that no, there, there was no match. Uh, Redmond, the Ferris wheel operator, did not, you know, deposit his his semen on the on the body of Joanne Lynn. Uh, that would have been a really nice way to sum up that case. But you're, you're absolutely right. Well, you know, before I talk about how I acquire new leads, I, I kudos to the law enforcement in Livingston County, New York, with this Joanne Lynn case, because it is 70 right. years old, and they kept that semen sample for 70 years when DNA technology came in. They had no problem getting a DNA profile off of it, and the case is solvable because of that. I mean, it's a, it's mm. a long distance from what we got from Monroe County with a 1966 case in which they complained that everything had degraded, and then eventually when we really got interested in it, they said they lost it. So Livingston County, whoever whoever bagged that evidence was way ahead of their time. A crime scene investigator from the future. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah that, you know, it, 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 it's sad a lot because I do get a lot of phone calls and messages from people who have been abused and because their husband, their ex-husband or their father or whoever it was, was a monster, they're convinced that they must be the killer of this person or that person. Uh, in, in one case, 
we found a, uh, a, a, a woman who said that her father had abused her as a, as a child. And when Devil Jesse Junction came out, he didn't want to talk about it. Uh, left the room in a huff at one point when somebody asked him a question about that. Hey, didn't you used to live in that neighborhood? Um, and subsequently, this man uh, moved down to Florida where a little girl was murdered. And the composite uh, drawing of the suspect was a dead ringer for him. So I mean, and that's that's the way we get we we've been pulled into these cases in, in a lot in a in a lot of instances, uh, where we were inter- interviewing people for uh, either Devil Agency Junction or Nightmare in Rochester, the double initial murders, and right. people say, well, you know, while you're looking at that, you should look at this one as well. I think if you mm-hmm. if you go through the names that you read at the beginning of the show, you'll find a disproportionate number of them are women with the same first and last initial. And that's not to say that those cases are connected in, in any way, but those were the cases that were referred to us because if you're looking for double initial cases, here's one. And that's how we started on, uh, on Sherry Smoyer and Jack King. And the, 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 the victims in, in, in the book are, are really, they're mostly female. There are a couple of males thrown in. One because he was, you know, with a female who apparently somebody was mad at. But uh, I think females make the most haunting victims in true crime. Um, the oldest case was the Joanne Lynn case from 1949, but the most recent was 2015. Um, they thought the thing they have in common, really, is that they get under your skin. And these are cases yeah. that you'll be thinking about long after you're done reading what I wrote about them. Yeah, you write uh, very, very eloquently about that um Cops know how it feels, the heaviness of their cases on their souls, how these atrocities chip away at their notions of a civilization. The victim's families know, buried in their necks in a nightmare that won't end. They understand the discomforting power of haunting homicides. So very appropriate name. Let's talk about Pamela Moss at 14 uh, from Penfield, New York. She was in the ninth grade in 1962. Um, She was planning to go to the mall. And this is a good kid, active in Girl Scouts and volunteering. Tell us what happens on that that day with plans to go to the mall. Pamela Moss. Yeah, Pamela came home that day and had plans to go to the mall with her girlfriend who had to pick up a new pair of glasses. And when she got home, she called her girlfriend and girlfriend said my glasses aren't ready yet my mom says I can't go so Pamela without telling anyone decides you know she was going to go to the mall by herself and she lived at the end of a a dead-end street in a recently built uh, suburban housing area and the way it was set up to follow the main roads to the mall was a mile further than if you just took the shortcut through the woods Right. So she needed to get back in time for a babysitting job that she had that evening. So she decided to go through the woods. Um, and her partially clad body was found in a water-filled gravel pit two miles from the Moss home. Her head was in 18 inches of muddy water, and her feet were on the shoreline 
Partially covering the body was a waterlogged four-foot wooden ladder that looked like it had been in the water for some time. Body wore a bra and a pullover blouse. The underwear and shorts were found 100 feet away on the side of a steep hill. Now, unlike many of the cases in this book, this one was solved. Um, The hunt for Pamela Moss's killer developed into the largest manhunt in Monroe County history up until that time. Unlike most of the murders uh, that we deal with here, we have a name. We have a name to put with the, with the horrible child molester mm-hmm. and killer. He is James Robert Moore. And he was working as a landscaper next door to the Moss house. Uh, Moore's criminal record was enough to make your skin crawl. He'd been released from probation in June 62 after a November 1960 conviction in Erie County for molesting two young girls in Depew. That's a Buffalo suburb. Um, Moore was charged with third-degree assault for the Depew crime and given a 60-day suspended sentence. He was sent to Meyer Memorial Hospital in Buffalo for observation, and his eventual probation terms required him to regularly see a psychiatrist, which he did. Uh, After he moved from Cheektowaga to Webster, which is a uh, town just east of Rochester, he arranged to uh, see a psychiatrist at Strong Memorial Hospital, Rochester's number one hospital. And at that point, he was allowed to take a job trimming hedges next door to the Mosses, where he could keep an eye on the comings and goings of Pamela, who was a pretty little girl. Now, Moore is still alive. He is the senior resident of the New York State penal system. He's now been behind bars for the killing of Pamela Moss for 56 years. Wow. Uh, this was, that was the last murder in Penfield. It's a very nice town until the 2003 murder of Tabitha Bryant by her husband and brother, a crime that became the subject of my first true crime book many years ago called Betrayal in Blood. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Pamela Moss case was solved just in time for the Monroe County Sheriff's Office, new headline-grabbing mystery, the murders of Sheree Smoyer and Jack King. Yes. What was the... You include some of the things that how he confessed to police and what he told police. Um, very disturbing what he admitted to. Well, yeah, to. He, he stalked her. He, uh, you know, he he knew that she she took the shortcut to go to the mall, even though you know, the girls weren't supposed to, but they all did because it was such a a time saver. You know, round trip it would cut forty five minutes off of your walk. Uh, he jumped her in the middle of the woods. Uh, he raped her. He strangled her to death. And then he wrapped her up and put her in his pickup truck and drove her to the, uh, to the landfill where he dumped her body uh, on the opposite side of the landfill from where men were usually working, which is why the body wasn't found more quickly. Right, and you you write too that he has a, now has a parole hearing every two years, but he's been denied okay. nineteen. He was denied nineteen times. Last time was two thousand eighteen. So, well, I, the, the judge that sentenced him said that he was getting life in prison without the chance of parole in lieu of of a death sentence. Right. So that even though the parole rules have changed since then, 
you know, the the new judge who's hearing the case always goes along with the original judge. But this guy should never ever see the outside of a prison again for any reason, and he hasn't, and I don't think he will. No. You say hours later after this uh, sentence was handed down, Jack King and Sherry Smoyer were killed. This is a particularly interesting case um, because of your involvement and, and the contact that you had with uh, King's niece. Uh, tell us about Jack King and Sherry Smoyer. Sure. Uh, Jack King and Sherry Smoyer were a young couple who on Saturday night, July 13, 1963, went to a drive-in movie on a date to see the three-plus-hour film Mutiny on the Bounty with Marlon Brando. Um, because of the length of the movie, Sherry had to get a special uh, curfew for that night. And she had to be home by 1 a.m. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the kids never made it home. And they were right. found shot to death the next morning on a really, really hard-to-find Lover's Lane near Pittsburgh, New York. Now, here's a fun fact. You know, fun with quotation marks around it. I grew up about a mile from that drive-in, and I remember going with my mom and dad. I was six to see Mutiny on the Bounty at the Starlight Drive-in. Yeah. You know, I don't, uh, I don't know if the Bensons went the same night as as Jack and Sherry, but we might have. And the other interesting point about this case is that the the cover of Haunting Homicides is based on the marquee of the Starlight Drive-In. Um, right. It was adapted by my daughter as the title and byline for the book, which I think gives it a striking and different look. I, it, I don't know of any other Certainly. book who quite, that quite looks like Haunting Homicides. It's kind of a spooky no. cover. Um, by the way, we know, that, we know that Smoyer and King actually went to the movies that night because there was a witness who saw Sherry at the uh, concession stand at about 9.50 p.m., and the witness was a good one. She was uh, 20-year-old Carol Beachy. She had been Smoyer's former West High West High School classmate. They, she easily recognized Sherry, and vice versa. They waved at one another. Uh, Sherry seemed uh, upbeat, and there was no evidence of a problem. Uh, the movie ended at 1.05 a.m., but for those who fell asleep, there could have been confusion because immediately following the first showing, the first half of the movie was shown again for the benefit of latecomers. So the theater didn't go dark that morning until 2.40 a.m. Now, authorities would soon learn that there were two witnesses with a reason to recognize King's car who saw Smoyer and King at 1.50 a.m. speeding home from the drive-in already 20 minutes late for Smoyer's curfew. Well, they never made it home. At 7 a.m. on Sunday, Smoyer's parents called the sheriff. And less than four hours later, a fisherman from Brighton discovered the bodies a mile and a half from Smoyer's home on a difficult-to-access dirt road that led to the state-owned hunting and fishing area off of Old Route 96, also known as the Pittsburgh-Victor Road. The bodies were close together but oddly configured. Uh, they were lying on the ground near the front of King's car, positioned in the shape of a T. She was clutching one of his trouser legs. He was lying on his left side. Uh, neither his slacks nor his short-sleeved sports shirt were in disarray. He was shoeless, but his loafers lay nearby. 
the girl was face down, wearing Bermuda shorts, blouse, and white sneakers. Her clothing was also undisturbed. No, no sex aspect, um, and mm-hmm. therefore no DNA. Uh, police speculated that they'd been ordered to lie down before they were shot, um, and swore apparently clutched King in fear just before they died. There were no powder burns on the body, suggesting that the shots were not fired from point-blank range. Uh, four shells from a forty-five were found near the bodies, and a fifth was found inside King's car. Uh, a quarter and a penny lay on the dirt road, $15 in King's pocket, milkshake containers found in King's car. Smore had a small amount of money in her purse, so robbery wasn't the motive. Uh, Jack King was not familiar with the area. Actually, actually neither of them were. Uh, Sherry's parents had only moved to their new house the year before, and she'd been away at college for most of that time. You know, she knew... If she knew about a lover's lane, it would have been in Genesee Valley Park, which was near the high school that she went to. We're throughout the mm-hmm. suburbs now. Neither of these kids know how to get to the place where their bodies are found. Um, which I think is a key point in figuring out who did it. Um, to prove that he couldn't have found the lover's lane, he had a hastily sketched map in his pocket so that he could get to Sherry's house. Right. So then, then the difference between the two victims was that Cherie had been beaten in the back of the head, crushing her skull. The killer had a Mm -hmm. special anger for her, or for females in general, and yet there was no sign of sex in the crime. Um, And the clothes weren't even disheveled. And the timeline for the night of the murder turns out to be a a real problem. Uh, Postmortem procedures determined that the teens were shot at about 5 in the morning. But sheriff's deputies had reported to the scene at 3.30 a.m. to investigate a report that two cars had been stuck in the sand about 200 feet beyond the place where the shooting occurred. So at 3.30 a.m., King and Smoyer aren't there. So where were they at 3.30, already long past curfew? We don't know. And why and how they got to the lover's lane, we don't know. The only car there is Jack's father's car, and there's a scrape on the side of the car that wasn't there that morning. Now, Interesting. One thing I know from experience, from first-hand experience, is that when you went to the Rochester Drive-In and the movie ended, everybody tried to get out at the same time. There was one exit, the right-hand side as you faced the screen, out onto Brighton Henrietta Town Line Road. And because they didn't want everybody emptying into the major intersection to the left, there was a guy standing there with a flare, and he made everybody go to the left. And Everybody tried to merge so they could get out this small exit. And a lot of opportunities for fender benders. So it's possible that somebody scraped Jack's dad's car, Jack had a fit, and somehow the rest of the evening was revenge. Although, I mean, who knows? Profilers at the time said that there was a... Killer, but the killer was a religious zealot who was out to punish sinful teenagers for their lustful ways. Mm-hmm. This is, I guess, under the assumption that the killer came upon them already on the lover's lane or perhaps kissing in the car at the, at the movies. Right. Well, it, it, it seemed a little bit wacky to me, but then a guy just like that profile shows up. On April 25, 1964, at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, 
a 30-year-old Rochester man named Vernon M. Hunter ran the thruway toll booth in Victor, that's New York State Thruway, um, entering the thruway without taking a ticket. The thruway interchange at Victor called troopers and said a 1956 car had just passed without license plates, and the chase began on the thruway. Suspect crossed the mall and returned back, got onto Route 96, and at 90 miles an hour, with now 20 officers in pursuit, the chase lasted for close to an hour. And it finally came to an end when he drove across the lawn and cop cars boxed him in. So uh, once his car was, uh, then they rammed his car so that the fender was rubbing against his tire. With his car disabled, his adrenaline plummeted, and he just sat there and awaited arrest. It was now 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, when he was captured, was near Panorama Plaza. It happens to be the same plaza that Pamela Moss was heading toward. Um, right. He has an Army 45 loaded with six ball shells in his car. And that's taken away from him in high hopes that this will be a match for the, the Smoyer King ballistics, but it, it was not. Uh, the man was captured and explained that he'd been on his way to Auburn, but didn't have toll money for the thruway. Gave his address. He said he owned the, the car, but it was unregistered. He was a six-foot Husky veteran, and police learned he'd been in the Army for two years, was stationed in Europe, was honorably discharged. Uh, they, they took him to the Henrietta substation and charged him with carrying a loaded gun without a permit. And during his arraignment, Hunter seemed happy. He was smiling and joking, said he wanted to call his brother. Background check revealed that he had previous address for drunk driving and speeding tickets, but he'd never been charged with a felony. Now, while authorities awaited word from Washington on his gun, he began acting weird in his jail cell. Now, the newspaper reported that he poured water onto his mattress and put his shoes in the toilet. I'm guessing that's a euphemistic. Yeah. I think he urinated on his mattress and put his shoes in the toilet. Uh, and they found that he had been a former resident of the Willard State Hospital, which was an ancient asylum for the chronic insane, uh, and that he'd been diagnosed as a schizophrenic and discharged from that facility on February 15th, 1962, as, quote, improved, unquote. Yeah. His behavior became increasingly erratic. He told cops he was the son of God, uh, that teenagers sure. under 25 were bad and needed to be punished. Um, so here he was. He was just what the profilers for the Smoyer King murders were looking for. Religious fanatic, right. well, a grudge against young people. And it really looked very promising until the FBI ruined it and said the gun was no match. Yeah. Now, my own profile, which I you know, developed in conjunction with Don Tubman and all the other smart people I've talked to over the years, is that our killer is a local. You have to be a local to find the crime scene. I mean, it's a dirt road off a dirt road down a slope by the next, by the, you know, it, you had to have gone fishing there or parked there before to know where it was. So he's a, he's a local kid and he's got a special grudge against Sherry Smoyer or women in general. Now, mm. just like Hunter, just such a suspect is reported to me by a man we called Daryl. 
He said his brother Edgar was the killer. Daryl said that Edgar had dated Cherie that summer and had run into her at the movies by accident. He became angry that she was with another guy and followed them afterwards, eventually forcing them to a location that he was very familiar with, and he killed them there. Now, my informant even said that he'd seen his brother throw the gun into the Erie Canal and later admit to killing the couple. But there was a problem. Daryl, our informant, was a 'er ne'er-do-well, a troubled guy with a sketchy past, mental issues, and his brother, the accused, had no record and was squeaky clean. So it was a matter of Cain squealing on Abel. And predictably, police talked to both, decided that it was a hoax of some sort, and that was that. But, you know, if if Edgar isn't the guy, uh, by this investigation's way of thinking, it's someone just like him. Yeah. You you okay. talk about the uh that you talked to Lynn King about Daryl's claims. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was an interesting conversation what she thought along this whole way because it was a progression. You spoke to him and progressively it was oh, revealed yeah, yeah, that no, it's it, it, the problems with the story. <laughs> yeah. Well that's right. Lynn King is Jack King's niece. Right. And the King family is a huge family, and, and she's you know, a beautiful and, and talented and intelligent woman. She's a lawyer, and she asked Don and I to help with the case, which was fine with us because you know, we already had a pretty decent file on it to begin with. Uh, and again, we became family investigators. So when I had developed Daryl, uh, to the point where I thought I, I, I had him telling a, a coherent story. <laughs> he, he had problems. He, he couldn't finish sentences on the same subject. He started them on, and everything, was, everything came off as sketchy. But I couldn't ignore him as nuts because he hit all the key points on my profile. He, he, the, he, he established why the gun wasn't found. He established why, a motive. He established how the crime scene came to be the crime scene all these things were difficult to explain yet he did it very simply uh but in his own you know kind of scattered way now he said that you know dad was a misogynist dad abused mom uh his brother edgar was a misogynist had gone through several wives and you know and he, he had to admit that you know, even he too uh had troubles with women largely because Mom was uh, addicted to prescription drugs and didn't defend the kids when dad was on a rampage. And I think a, a lot of misogynists develop that feeling in this way. It's, it's the anger towards mom that's been expanded to include all women in the world. Sure. So, and I, and I didn't give that piece of information enough uh, enough weight when I decided that Maybe Lynn King, victim's niece, you know, lawyer, trained questioner, should talk to Daryl and see what happened. Well, it didn't go well. Uh, he, he didn't like being accused of things by a woman. He eventually uh, said some really, really ugly things about both Lynn King and the King family, which apparently he was making up you know, out of whole cloth. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the King family or Lynn King. 
Uh, and he started in on me. He done research into me. He found out that nobody likes me, and blah blah blah. Anyway, so he he was becoming a worse witness as time went along. Yeah. But I think by the time the uh, the police took over and, and talked to him and his brother, uh, they found a very very strong case of uh, sane and insane, and the sane one was the one who was being accused. Yeah, but it was very, very interesting, though, that this it, the sane part of them was certainly evident in the beginning. It seemed to be very plausible. The story seemed, like you say, parts of it could be checked out and verified to a certain degree. Uh, and then at the end, it, he really does sound, sound bald-faced crazy, so, <laughs> yes. which is pretty evident. Yeah, uh, yeah. and it, that has been a problem um, in most cases. When the witnesses deteriorate uh, and, and mm-hmm. lose their grip on, on the story they're telling, it, it's yeah. easy to dismiss them because you realize, well, they were just crazy all along, and the person they're accusing is someone who's a personal enemy of theirs, but not necessarily a person involved in the crime we're investigating. But in this case, it wasn't so easy. They, they, no. The accused had proximity, had uh, motive, and, and the Anyway, it's uh, it, it's very frustrating that it that it's happened this way. I'm, we're, we're still it's fascinating. That, uh, we're still very hopeful and 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 King Smoyer, but uh, we we shall see what happens. Yes, let's talk about a case that made uh, incredible national news: uh, the case of Brittany Drexel. Uh, vanishes on spring break, but of course we know the story that uh, her mother was not aware that she was on spring break. Uh, it sounds like a familiar story. Tell us about uh, 2009, a very attractive young girl vanishes on spring break, Brittany Drexel. Yeah, well, again, uh, I I think I have a little bit more of a personal attachment to this than, than the rest of the nation. Um, because mm-hmm. the headline said, Chi Lai, New York girl missing. And, of course, the last time that happened, that was 1966, and that's the devil at Genesee Junction. So it's my hometown. Yeah. Yeah, she wasn't just a beautiful 17-year-old girl. She grew up about a mile from where I did. Um, yeah. She wanted to go away for spring break with her friends. Her mom understandably said no. And Brittany, instead of doing what mom said, uh, told a lie, said I'm spending the night with friends here locally, and split for South Carolina, um, a fact that her mother did not know until she was already missing. So it's April 25th, 2009, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, great place to go for spring break, as long as you don't wander around at night in your shorts. Yeah. Uh, Brittany was staying at the Bar Harbor Motel, she went to visit a friend at the Blue Water Resort on Saturday night, which was down the road, and she left to return to her own motel and was never seen again. Now, according to her Blue Water Resort friends, who were adult men, uh, she was having an argument with one of the girls she traveled with. She borrowed the girl's shorts, and the girl wanted them back. So that meant an unscheduled walk back to her hotel to change. Now, the last evidence of Brittany on the earth is on a surveillance video that shows her leaving the Blue Water Resort on Ocean Boulevard at 8.15 p.m. wearing a white top and the controversial black shorts. 
She left by herself and was never seen again. Now, her mom last spoke to her at noon on the day she disappeared. Uh, Dawn, the mom, still had no clue where her daughter was. Brittany said she just spent the morning just hanging out. Brittany's on-again, off-again boyfriend, John Grieco, he was one of the first to realize that something was wrong. They'd Mm -hmm. met on a blind date and had been going together for years off and on. And when when he called her, he always got a call back right away. Uh, but, but this time there was nothing, no response. And five hours without a call back, John called Brittany's parents and told them he thought something had happened to Brittany. And that was how Dawn Drexel found out that her daughter had gone south. Now, the day after Brittany disappeared, her phone gave a single ping in McClellanville, Georgetown County, South Carolina, and then went forever silent. So skip ahead to 2016, seven years later, an FBI investigation uncovered new and incredibly nightmarish information. Uh, Human traffickers snatched Brittany. Uh, A series of jailhouse snitches ratted out an inmate named Timothy Deshaun Taylor, as the same guy who was arrested six years earlier for attempting to kidnap a Myrtle Beach woman story went that Taylor picked Brittany up in Myrtle Beach and drove her to McClellanville, where he showed her off and introduced her to his friends. He then, quote, tricked her out, unquote, as human traffickers are prone to do. Uh, One of the informants said he saw Brittany being abused, tortured for days in a smelly stash house. Uh, One of the informants was named Taquan Brown, and he said he was at the stash house to meet Taylor Uh, who told him he needed to borrow some money. And he saw Brittany there. She'd been beaten. She was sporting a black eye. And he watched as she made a run for it. Uh, The stash house was in the country, and there was a back door that faced a dirt road. But she ran too slow. She was grabbed, dragged back, and pistol whipped. Now, Sean Taylor then took her in back of the house. Two shots were fired and Brown did not see her after that. He said he assumed they wrapped her up and took her away. Now that's not the end of the story, unfortunately. Uh, the FBI spoke to other informants who carried the story from there, saying that Brittany's body was taken to a gator pit and fed to the alligators. So, wow. you know, haunting to say the least, uh, the ultimate nightmare for a mother. Yeah, and that's the, the story they they told the mother. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't believe that so much was so many details were spared from some mothers. Uh, again, one of the stories where she had to talk to you to find out details. Uh, I think Georgia. Right. Uh, so that's yeah, and Kathy's mom, Alice. Sure. Well, Kathy's mom, yeah. yeah uh, you know, I I am all in favor of being truthful to moms. Mm-hmm. You are just not doing them any favor by sparing no. them details because their imaginations and their dread is so strong that, you know, please make them stop wondering what happened. Tell them what happened. Yeah. I don't know how others feel about that, but I, I just don't think that protecting the mom by keeping her in the dark is necessarily a good thing. Uh, maybe if, if, if there's still a question as to what happened, you might want to, save the mom from the grief. But once you know that that's what happened, 
tell her, please. Mm-hmm. She's just torturing her by keeping it a secret. Well, I've seen, in my own experience, people uh, not informed about details of their loved one killed. Right. You know, Thirty-seven years later, so they didn't. They're finding out details now inadvertently. So, uh, even more horrible, I would believe. Let's talk about Kelly Gaffield. Sure. Uh, and August eighth, nineteen ninety-five. Uh, she's supposed to be home by 9.30. Again, this is a good kid here. Let's let's talk about uh, what happens that night instead okay. of coming home. Um, yeah, Kelly, Kelly Ann Gaffield was 16 years old. She lived in Webster, New York, again, town uh, just east of Rochester. Um, she told her mother that she loved her and would be home by 9.30 and never came back. Um, now, Webster's a, a working-class suburban town. It's not ritzy like Brighton or Pittsburgh. And Kelly's mom, Christine Riley, called Webster police the following morning and said Kelly didn't come home last night. And the search for Kelly at the homes of friends was fruitless, and she was presumed to have run away. Now, during interviews, Christine was candid about her worries that Kelly was growing up too fast, She'd found letters in Kelly's room that were troubling. But here's the most haunting part. There were nine sightings of Kelly Gaffield in the Rochester area in August, September, and October of 1995. Reports that reinforced the notion that she was alive and well, but off on her own. You know, three young people who knew her told police that they'd run into Kelly on the street and had briefly spoken to her. Yeah. The very first sighting, came on August 8th, just minutes after she left her house. Uh, Her aunt saw her walking into the woods behind uh, the Phillips Village off Krieger Road. It's the uh, apartment complex where she lived. It was about 7.15 p.m. It was a secluded area known as a teen hangout. And the last sighting in early October was by a male friend who said he ran into her in the parking lot of a Topps Friendly supermarket on South Clinton Avenue in, in town of Brighton. And the young man said Kelly appeared agitated. So all of this is adding to this, this feeling that Kelly doesn't want to go home. Kelly's left home and she does not want to go home. But Kelly's mom knows Kelly is not a runaway. She never returned to pick up her belongings. She didn't even take her asthma medication. You know, her aunts and cousins said she was not a runaway candidate. Uh, she liked her family. She was willing to talk about her problems. Well, Kelly's missing person status changed at 10 o'clock in the morning on October 22nd, which is three solid months after she's disappeared, when her decomposed body was discovered by a hunter in a wooded area east of Phillips Road near Ridge Road in Webster, uh, fairly close to where her aunt saw her on the evening of her disappearance. Right. Um, so not an easy to reach spot. There's no path. You kind of have to hack your way through the weeds to get there. Um, and it almost seemed that the police were duped into believing Kelly was still alive because, you know, these woods would have been searched if the sure. foul play had been suspected, but they weren't. You know, 
people keep running into Kelly. Um, now, yeah. every report of a Kelly sighting was followed up on with police interviews, and the family was now saying that the cops dropped the ball by treating the case as a runaway case. And police defended themselves. They said the sightings were so frequent that they had to work on the theory that she was okay but elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, there had never been any indications, for example, that she was being held against her will, and at age 16, she was being treated as an adult. Now, the frustrating thing in this case is that there's an unchanging list of suspects. It's been common knowledge in Webster for many years. And uh, I first heard about the case from an informant who gave me the names of the, of the men on the list. And the story was that uh, she'd been lured into the woods by a group of boys uh, that they had perhaps given her alcohol and drugs and were in the process of having sex with her uh, when something went wrong. You know, the story is she had an asthma attack, and the boys, instead of getting her help, they abandoned her. Um, the, the problem with that is she had a couple of broken ribs. So there's if she had an asthma attack, it might be because somebody was too rough with her. Uh, it's hard to breathe when you have broken ribs sticking into your lungs. Now, none of the young men who aren't that young anymore uh, have ever confessed to law enforcement, although two of them have committed suicide, which I think lends some credence to the, the validity of the list of names. I would urge you know, any of those young men who might be listening to you know, tell, tell Webster police. You know, at this point, I don't think you're going to have to deal with a murder charge uh, it all happened when you were a kid. Uh, it was a bad incident that went from bad to worse. But I'm not sure that uh, life wouldn't improve for these gentlemen if they fessed up. Because obviously they have consciences. It's it's quite a plausible story, though, when you add that they, it was a, a relative of hers, friend's, they had been used to sort of saying inappropriate things to her. Then they had this plan of getting her drunk, and it worked. And then this, right. it seems a very plausible story compared to some unplausible stories given by accused in this book. Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think that we kind of know what happened to Kelly Gaffield. Uh, mm-hmm. But for there to be closure... Someone who's there is going to have to admit it to someone in, in authority. Uh, so sure. far, it's been discussed at a lot of parties and get-togethers. And I know that uh, there's one of the men on the list is ill and uh, you know may not have long to live. And very hopeful that you know before you know his life ends, he decides to, to set the record straight. And you know, I, I guess they're, they're they're protecting each other as much as they're protecting themselves. But uh, yeah. it would be better for all of them if the truth was known. Tell us again how you got you became involved in the George Ann Formicola and Kathy Bernhardt, your former friends. How you came to write about their case. Tell us right. about well, that event. That you know, I, I've always wanted to write about their case. Uh, 
I can remember writing about it in a, in a little journal when I was 12, <clears throat> which I kept. And some of that material ends up in the book, but 40 some years later. Um, but yeah, I, uh, what happened was that Kathy's, Kathy Bernhardt's mother, Alice, and my mom, they both passed away since, were, were sitting in a, uh, in a backyard at a, at a summer party in folding chairs, sipping beer, and my book, Killer Twins, had just come out. And my mom was bragging to Alice about her son, the, the crime writer, and Alice said, it's too bad that your Michael can't write a book about my Kathy. And my mom said, ask him. Well, Alice was too shy to ask me, but eventually I got around to approaching Alice, and, and we decided that we had a lot in common, and we could be very good for one another because people who wouldn't talk to me in a million years were now going to tell me everything they knew because I'm working for Alice Bernhardt, who's a beloved member of the community, you know, a true sweetheart, 90-year-old woman who everybody loves. She's still the neighborhood's grandma. And for her, she's finally found someone who's going to treat her like a grown-up. And like you said before, tell her the truth about what happened instead of letting her imagination continue to work. Right. And we, we did a, a really good, uh, good job. <laughs> I have to say that mm-hmm. for, uh, we teamed up with Donald A. Tubman, who's been around ever since. And you know, our best lead during the initial investigation uh, led us to a set of brothers who are prone to violence against women, including sex, sex attacks under threat of death. Uh, in the devil of Genesee junction, we refer to them as the Wilson brothers, but their names were actually Johnson and they were from Dundee, New York. Now, one of them right. was married to George Ann's sister and another to her first cousin. Uh, the brothers had no scruples. You know, the, they, one of them, quote, beat up, unquote, their mom. Uh, best way to explain the depravity of the family is this. Both our primary suspect, Clint, and his father, Clint Sr., died soon after being caught raping their own granddaughters. Yeah. So Junior was a chip off the old block in the sickest possible way. And if it's a coincidence that this guy lives next door to one of the victims and is brother-in-law of another, uh, then I, you know, I'll eat my hat. You know, George Ann's nephew said that, quote, the Johnson boys killed the girls, but that it was okay because they took care of it inside the family, which led us to investigate the deaths of the brothers, uh, and many of which were caused by or occurred in the vicinity of their wives. So the women of the family took over and systematically disposed of these guys. And in Haunting Homicides, we get a close-up look at the investigation into the death of George Ann's brother-in-law, shot to death with a shotgun in the town of Henrietta by his wife's boyfriend, uh, while the wife, George Ann's sister, was in the car screaming. Uh, We take a close-up look at the investigation into that crime, as well as some haunting eyewitness accounts of the bizarre cauldron of human depravity that was allowed to fester near Genesee Junction during the summer of 1966. So the, the book also has an update on the double initial murders, which was the murders of Carmen Colon, Wanda Walkowitz, 
and uh, Michelle Mayenza in 1971 and 1973 in Rochester. Uh, all of them were uh, picked up while walking alone on the street in an urban setting, and their bodies were found raped in, uh, beside a country road, a very rural setting. And that was the thing that, that tied them together. They're all 10 or 11 years old. Um, and we we give some updates on that. We we follow the the odd pattern set by Kenneth Bianchi and Joseph Nazo, um, which is now joined by a new guy named Paul Frediani. And these are all young men who were in high school in the Rochester area at the time of the double initial murders. And all of them moved to California and became convicted killers. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's weird. Uh, Nazo, of course, is the most unusual of the bunch because his victims all had the same first and last initial. Not all, but most of them had the same first and last initial, and he killed a woman in California whose name was also Carmen Cologne, same name as the first double initial victim in the Rochester area. Um, yeah. Now, that's a, that's a DNA case. It's a limited DNA case. We have DNA from the middle victim, but not from the other two. And obviously, so far, there's never been a DNA match with any of these suspects. What is the most uh, profound thing that you discovered in haunting homicides? Of all the profound things that you discovered in all the investigations that you undertook, with these cases and all the contacts and leads that you followed up on what's the most profound thing about this book? Well, I, I think what we have here is uh, symptoms of a disease that in some cases police didn't yet know existed. Um, the idea that, human monsters went out and hunted people that the victims were usually non-threatening types uh, such as children and diminutive women uh, and that the crimes were done for sexual gratification uh, law enforcement up until the end of World War II very very good at solving murders that accompanied robberies and murders that were involved, involved domestic disputes. You know, if the wife died, the husband always did it. You know, if the, the gas station guy was shot, it was the same guy who emptied the, the cash register drawer. But this, we found an 11 year old girl partially clad in the weeds. That stuff was kind of befuddling. You know, yeah. the whole idea of, of serial murder, uh, wasn't thought of that much. They, uh, the Boston Strangler was, was one that was known, but until the, the mid-60s, when a, a Pandora's box was opened, pretty much during the summer of 1966, same time as the Chile murders, uh, you know, with it, by the end of the 60s, we knew that, that serial killing was, was a thing, that evil was, was out there, and that there were human predators. Uh, but to, to watch the light bulb go on slowly is uh, is uh, 
very profound for me that we're, we're, we're so much smarter now. And to the point where the, the nature of mind-bogglingly horrible crime has changed. We don't see mm-hmm. the, the, the serial killer who allows the pressure cooker to build up in between crimes, uh, the one who taunts police but stays a shadow. Uh, today we see spree killers, guys who harm themselves in one way or another and then go to a crowded place and try to kill as many as they can. And usually it turns out to be a particularly violent and horrible form of suicide because they end up dead, either shot by a police officer or at their, their own gun. Um, so there's this, this period at the end of the 20th century where there's this, this phenomenon of serial killing. And it, 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 I don't think it'll ever cease to fascinate me because it was the thing that terrorized me to the point of trauma when I was a kid. You know, and I, I'm glad I gave Alice Bernhardt some closure. I'm not sure that I'll ever give myself closure. And no, no. You know, luck, luckily for for true crime readers, I uh, I think I will always be searching for for answers involving these sorts of crimes. Absolutely, it is also fascinating to see for for the younger reader. Uh, they must be astonished at the. The, the the sense of trust of people that they weren't they wouldn't report their children missing for hours later I guess after they exhausted all of the the obvious ideas where they thought their kid might have gone to the 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 uh, the constant phone contact that we have now would enable us to know about things that or at least believe that something had gone awry much much earlier than afterwards now it. When when you read this stuff now, you can't believe the differences that these kinds of crimes and these kinds of criminals have made with everyone's life in society today. Yeah, when Joanne Lynn is abducted at what eight o'clock in the morning, uh, the school knows she's absent, but her parents don't know she's absent until she doesn't come home from school, and even then. You know, the thinking is that maybe she stopped at the store. All in all, 11 hours passed before police are informed that this little girl didn't show up at school that morning. Uh, Those rules changed. Yeah, 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 go ahead. Even the brother doesn't know. He he doesn't see his sister there, but doesn't think to call. Again, we would do that today. Doesn't think to call home. Just thinks, well, I guess she just stayed back. I left earlier, so she must have stayed back. Yeah, incredible. And I, you know, I, I'm, I certainly remember the days before cell phones. You know, you you needed to, you needed to find somebody with a phone or, or a pay phone in order to call, and you wanted to make yeah. really sure that nothing that that there was an actual emergency because if you called and it upset your mother and it turned out to be nothing, you know, you might get yelled at. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, just the whole idea that there might be a, a crime. A crime occurring didn't occur to people. No. Incredible. Yeah. I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about haunting homicides. It's been a a real pleasure. Uh, For those that might want to look at your other work, your 25 years of true crime writing, um, is there a Facebook page for this and a website they might refer to? Well, you can uh, can go to uh, Amazon.com. I have uh, my own page there. Uh, don't confuse me with the uh, the Michael Benson who writes about outer space. 
Uh, I'm the one with the white beard. Um, I, one thing in the book, uh, I, at the end of each chapter for the open cases, I've given a phone number for the appropriate right. law enforcement. Uh, and if, as so often happens, uh, you know something and you never want to talk to a police officer ever, 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 you can get in touch with me. You know, I'm, I'm at author Michael Benson. Uh, if I can give give a quick plug for stuff coming up, uh, sure. Not still on sale at a bookstore near you is Carmine, Carmine the Snake, biography of mafia legend Carmine Persico that I wrote with Frank DiMatteo, on sale next month. Brooklyn to Baghdad, Christopher Strom's memoir, uh, written with Jerome Preisler and myself, about a New York Police Department interrogation expert who, after retirement, goes to Iraq to fight terrorism. And next year, my next mob opus, written with Frank DiMatteo, called Lord High Executioner. Uh, it's the story of the man who ran Murder, Inc., Albert Anastasia. Wow, fascinating. Well, thank you very much, and thank Thanks, you, uh, Michael, for your work with uh, Donald Tubman on Haunting Homicides. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much, Michael. Have a great I evening. appreciate it, Dan. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Good night. Take care. Bye-bye. Good night.